Hey folks, welcome to America Explained, it's Andy here. What you're going to hear on this episode is an interview that I did on another podcast. That podcast is called The Why Curve, it's hosted by Phil Dobby and Roger Herring. They're two great journalists who work at BBC and Bloomberg, and they interviewed me about how Europe should prepare for a second Trump presidency. We covered all sorts of things, from the economics of a second Trump presidency, what that might look like, through to the implications for global democracy of Trump returning to the White House, despite all of the obvious reasons why he should not return to the White House. They've asked me really good questions, I thought, and I, you know, I really enjoyed answering them, and I hope I gave thoughtful answers. It's really good to be interviewed by somebody else because it makes you look at questions that might not necessarily have occurred to you. So I thought it would be good to repost this for the benefit of listeners of America Explained as well. I really hope you enjoyed the episode. If you do, please consider subscribing to this podcast, telling a friend about this podcast, but also check out Roger and Phil's podcast as well. The Y Curve, I think, is really good content, and I, I always enjoy giving it a listen. So thanks for tuning in, and I'll catch you again in two weeks for an original America Explained episode. The Y Curve with Phil Dobby and Roger Hearing. There's a storm coming. Around this time next year, if the polls are right, Western governments could be dealing with a grimly familiar face in the White House. A face they thought they'd seen the last of four years ago, along with his chaotic and disturbing style of government. Trump 2.0. And Democratic politicians across Europe and beyond are weighing up how to deal once again with a US president who seems to have more in common with Vladimir Putin and Xi Jinping. So what should we expect from a new Trump administration? How dangerous is he likely to be to the basic rules of the international system? And are London, Paris, Brussels and Berlin ready for what might be coming? The why curve. So are you ready for Trump 2.0? No. I look, I think on so many levels, it's, it's mm. going to be a scary time, isn't well, it? Well, it could be. We, it isn't certain. We should say that. Well, it's, well, we know what he said he mm. wants to do, though. I mean, this mm. whole idea that he's going to be a dictator from day one. Well, just mm. on day one. On day one only, So yes. he's going, it's going to be a very busy day for him. But what, yeah. you can do a lot of damage in a day. Well, uh, but also, you know, just the control. It's all about trying to grab control. That's mm. what he's, he's mm. focused on, isn't it? So, mm. like, uh, he, he wants to... Uh, you know, their equivalent of Ofcom. He wants to try and take control of that yeah. and have that have a direct reporting to the president. So he basically controls the media. <laughs> I mean, it's a scary stuff, that, isn't that, it? That, that, I mean, they always say with Trump, first time around, they said, don't don't take him literally, but take him seriously. Right. So, you know, what he actually says, he may not do. But on the other hand, you know, he's he's pretty focused on power. So the question is, if he's focused on power, how much it's going to be a test of the American mm. system? Mm. You know, how much of the, the, the system can stop him doing, even if he is intent on these things, can he be stopped by the American system? Well, and, and, and the system didn't prove that resilient last time, no. uh, as we saw. But I mean, there's, first of all, you know, it's not absolutely certain that he will be there, but it, the polls are suggesting it's likely. Mm. And I think there's a feeling that this time will be different because he's got a lot of scores to settle. This yeah. is the awful thing. No, I mean, a lot of court cases, don't forget, hanging over him as well. He Maybe he'll be president from jail. Well, yeah, he might. Well, is that possible? It, uh, is, it is technically possible in America, yes. Right, yeah. So Absolutely. What does, so how does that change America's standing? Oh, but I mean, no. if, he's, if he's focused on just getting his own back on people, mm. that's, that's one thing. And that's sort of like a, well, unless it's on the international stage, that's sort mm. of like a domestic American thing. And we can almost say, well, let's just leave them to that. You know, they, well, have, have fun, guys. But, but that's the what, problem with America. You can't do that. 
It's it affects it all on, of us. It, it's what it does on the international stage. Yeah, yeah. it's yeah, the yeah. bigger concern. It will affect everything because they are so powerful, and what they do. And many people say this. You know, it, it also dictates the kind of atmosphere, the, the the theme, the fashion almost in politics around the world, and that's yeah. terrifying. Yeah, it is. Well, and to, to, or do we just ignore him? Do we, is, is does America become isolated? Does uh, you can't ignore America. It yeah. just doesn't work. You know, historically, the last time that happened at all was kind of the 1920s, and the world is a very different place. A hundred years ago was a very different situation. Uh, you know, whether it's Ukraine, whether it's Gaza, whether it's relations with Russia, whether it's relations with China, yeah. it all matters hugely. So all of those, and there's, there's the question of military ties around the world, and then mm. there's the question of world trade and what yeah. he might do to that. And then there's the whole domestic agenda, what he does for the climate as well. well. That, that affects everyone, of course. And, that, you know, and actually, out of all of it, that is perhaps the biggest danger because we all know now that mm. um, you know even even my brother is sort of uh, who works for BP is sort mm. of coming round to the way of thinking that well maybe there's a bit something in this climate change <laughs> thing and I feel when yeah. he's turned then yeah. the rest of the world is you know that's he's the last one as far is as I can tell apart from Donald Trump yeah, drill baby drill he literally said that about a week ago <laughs> this is what Trump says but again yeah. what Trump says what Trump does who knows mm. but the fact is that governments uh, certainly uh, around the world and in, certainly in London uh, the, 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 the Sunak government is looking now we know mm. actively what it'll be like, and of course, uh, maybe it'll be Mr. Starmer and this the Sir Kia. Yeah, well, it's very interesting, isn't it? How's that relationship mm. going to go? But um, and, and and maybe Kia Starmer will just go. Well, okay, this is an opportunity for me to lurch a bit further to the right as well. And that's the question: Does the world does the world just move further to the right yeah. if Donald Trump is there? Because everyone is trying to, you know, cozy up with him, and they go, "Hey, look, we can be populist." Uh, well, it's populism, I think, rather than right wingery in a sense, because mm. it's not traditional Republican. Well, no, it's not, is it? That's true. It's a different kind of thing and we've yeah. seen it you know whether it's in Brazil the, in, in some ways it's the opposite isn't it yeah. it's like anti-free trade yeah yeah oh yeah, yeah. So, it's a different thing altogether well let's talk to someone who really knows what is being thought of in, in some of the uh, government offices across Europe and, and beyond Dr Andrew Gawthorpe he's a historian in the United States at Leiden University in the Netherlands he's written widely about this and he joins us now so, Andy, I mean, I guess the first question is, I mean, if he was to win the vote, the popular vote, would he still be able to take office? Because there's the whole thing about the 14th Amendment, which if you've been engaged in insurrection, that supposedly disqualifies you. But then, you know, uh, Donald Trump doesn't seem to follow the rules and seems seems to find his way around just about anything, doesn't he? Right. So the, this matter with the 14th Amendment, um, a few states have ruled that Trump is ineligible to appear on the ballot, um, either in the Republican primary or in the general election later this year. Um, that's going to go to the Supreme Court ultimately. And I think it's quite likely that they'll rule in Trump's favor. So I don't see, I mean, you know, anything can happen, I guess, but I think with this Supreme Court, they're not likely to rule against it. So that's maybe not so much of a threat. There's other court cases that are unfolding against Trump to do with um, the January 6th insurrection, the stolen documents case. And I mean, I do this for a living and I lose track of all the court cases against Donald Trump. But if any any of them found him in prison... I mean, would people still vote for him? Because at least several of them are criminal, aren't they? Or in in American terms, felony. Yeah, some some of them are criminal and they carry incredibly serious penalties. Um, And, you know, yeah, I tend to think that if he lands in prison, then he will lose the election. I think there's enough polling that shows that even Republicans say that if he's convicted, they're not going to vote for him. But the thing is that these cases are not guaranteed or even I would say likely to come to a conclusion before November. They keep getting pushed further and further back into the long grass by Trump's various legal machinations. So I my you know gut feeling is that that's not going to stop him contesting and possibly winning 
If he does get pushed back, I mean, uh, is it is it true that he can just give himself a pardon for these things? Yeah, so so this is somewhat contested in constitutional law because it's not happened before. There's never been a president like Trump before who felt the need to pardon himself. But I think that probably, again, with this Supreme Court and they're the ones who will make the decision, I think it's quite likely that Trump would be able to pardon himself or essentially just ignore law enforcement and, and continue merrily about his business. So there's this strange situation where you know Trump could get elected president in November, get put in prison in December, and then pardon himself in January or something like absolutely that. Absolutely extraordinary. So and that doesn't well, say to no, that that sets a very bad precedent by the president, <laughs> doesn't it? For I mean, for lawlessness. I mean, in if, general, if you're American, you'd be going, well, look, if the president can do it, I can do it. Well, it's yeah, not a good start. It, it, yeah, I mean, it, it's it, it's frankly insane, you know, to use a word that I, I don't use lightly, and Trump's. Lawyers actually recently argued in court that the president is able to order SEAL Team Six to go and kill his political enemies, and that there would be yes. there should be no legal ramifications for that. They say that That's the only thing, the only mechanism to hold a law-breaking president to account is impeachment. We know impeachment's mm-hmm. broken. Republicans won't impeach and convict Donald Trump, so they're essentially saying that the president should be able to get away with anything. So if you imagine Jeez. that a president enters office having just received this blessing that he can do whatever he wants and the legal system can do nothing about it, then you start to understand why so many Americans are so worried about what Trump might do in a second time. And not just Americans, because this thought experiment that we're putting in place here is saying, okay, in January, um, after the election, Donald Trump is put in place, he's sworn in, and then Western governments, the governments in the UK, Paris, Berlin, Brussels, Canberra, uh, look at this and go, right, we now have to deal with a person in the White House uh, whose whose decisions affect all of us is Donald Trump. I mean, is there a sense that that they're ready for this? I mean, I, I think it's really difficult to get ready for it. They're not ready for it. Um, there's two reasons it's difficult to get ready for it. One is that Donald Trump is so unpredictable and erratic, so in a way you can't really know what he's going to do, right, or exactly how he's going to pose a challenge. But then the the things that he's announced that he's going to do or plans to do, they strike at the heart of the Western alliance to such a you know precise degree that I just don't see how there's any precedent in post-war history in the Western alliance of how we would cope with these things. So Trump's talking about withdrawing from NATO. That would be such a cataclysmic event for for Western European governments. And I'm not really sure that they can kind of see, it's like the event horizon of a black hole. They can't see beyond it at this point because it would be such a massive event that would change so many things. And how do you plan for something like that? So we, you know, we believe that the, Places like Russia and China and Iran, they're all colluding in some way or other, whether it's overtly or otherwise. And then we've got the West fighting against the axis of evil, or what they might have been called. I don't think China was necessarily involved in it. Yeah. So where does, where, does, where does America fit in that? Is America as against those uh, those regimes as America has been in the past, or is, is Trump going to is Trump going to go? Well, you know, I don't think Putin's a bad bloke. You know, I'm actually taking some inspiration from him and some of the laws I want to pass. Uh, where does America fit now? Right. So you have this situation in America now where the politics is so polarized. The two parties have such completely different ideas about 
foreign policy should be run, that a single election can lead to a really massive change in the orientation of American foreign policy. Everything that we've seen before about where Donald Trump places himself in this context that you're talking about tells us that he believes that the autocratic states, the dictators like Xi Jinping, like Vladimir Putin, are his kind of people that these are people that he can work with, he can kind of treat them as peers and cut deals with them. And that is a way of looking at world politics, which is very unusual in, in recent American history. Most American presidents see the democracies as their natural friends. They see democratic leaders as the people who are like them and the ones that they want to cut deals with. But it seems that Trump thinks that through his own kind of, you know, the art of the deal, right? This thing he trades on where he's supposedly a master negotiator, that he can go to Moscow or can go to Beijing and cut some sort of deal that's just going to sort out all of these problems. When you consider that in reality, he's incredibly naive and inexperienced in international affairs. He doesn't really know what he's talking about. All he wants to do, and we saw this, for instance, with his dealings with North Korea in his first term, where all he wanted to do was just have a big press conference where he could make you know, a speech and say, we've solved this problem and now everything's fine and you know, we can get on with our life. He's not fundamentally a serious person. And he gets, you know, so he's, he gets... Um, his his lunch gets eaten by these guys, right? They just take him for a ride. Yeah. And so he has bad instincts and he has bad um, implementation of his instincts as well. But, but if we take Trump one, there was all that fear as well about what would happen. But his, the people who surrounded him, by and large, didn't... I mean, it, there wasn't a cataclysm. There wasn't... There were, I mean, there were things were... As you say, there were some ridiculous things went on. But he didn't withdraw from NATO. Yes, he certainly ended the Iran deal. But but it wasn't absolute madness because he, he has a lot of advisors. Wouldn't the same thing happen this time? And they, that choice on the Iran deal might not have been a bad decision either, by well, the way. Well, that's arguable, but yeah. Yeah, and so I think this is a really key question because it is indeed the case that in his first term, many of the things that Trump said he was going to do, he didn't do. And people around him seem to have stopped that from happening. So like John Bolton supposedly headed off several attempts by Trump to withdraw from NATO. The thing about a second Trump term, which might be different, of course, we don't know, but which might be different, is that he's unlikely to have that same caliber of person around him again in a second term. And at the moment, there are a lot of efforts underway in various US conservative think tanks, some of them kind of upstart think tanks that have grown up specifically to produce people who have the same policy views as Trump, who are essentially planning the staffing of the next Trump administration. And one of the ideas that's been floated around here and that Trump himself has endorsed is to actually change the way that the human resources law operates in the federal government so that he can sack many, many more people in these federal agencies and put his own people in charge of them. And not just in charge of them, but also on the second, the third, the fourth rung of the bureaucracy. And his idea with this is you know, the big problem that Trump had from his own perspective in the first term was that he didn't really understand how the government worked and he wasn't very good at pulling the levers of the government and getting it to do the things that he wanted it to do. So the idea is in the second term that he, you know, has a plan for for how to do that. Now that might not work, you know, I, I don't know, but this time he seems to have a much clearer idea of how to implement his agenda. I do, if I can add though, I do think that there's one limiting 
that I actually place more faith in, which is that we also noticed in, tr in Trump's first term that he was incredibly concerned with economic indicators. And I mean, you guys remember how he would just talk about the stock market all the time. And that was kind of his measure of how well his presidency was going. If the stock market's high, then everything's going great. Now, something like withdrawing from NATO, for instance, is going to crash the stock market. It's going to crash economic indicators. It's going to, you know, the same as trade agenda as well. So I tend to think that the thing that limits Trump from taking extreme actions is actually that he wants to just be a, a good steward of the economy. And ultimately, there's a limit to the disruption he wants to cause, because as soon as that starts feeding back into the things that he cares about, he might back off from Well, them. I admire your faith in the stock market as being a, a good indicator of the health of an economy. Because, I mean, you could... Well, it's you, Trump's view rather than... Well, I mean, you know, and you could say, well, people investing in American shares might go, well, this is good. This is sort of like an American first approach. It's going to be good for American companies. Uh, and uh, so these businesses might win out of it. I mean, money's still got to go somewhere. So, you know, there's, there's an argument both ways on all of that. But we, you were talking about the, the idea about him taking control. And yeah, I, I guess his idea that the the, the, uh, the Federal Communications Commission would come under his direct control, that's something that he said he wants to do. That's the sort of thing you're talking about, isn't it? Which is scary because then he's got basically the media under his control, which sounds very dictatorial. Right. I mean, th there's still a lot of federal law that governs how the FCC works that I think would limit to some extent what he could do in that realm. I mean, something he tried to do in his first term was to really bring outlets like the Voice of America much direct, much more directly under his control and to push not just a pro-America angle at these kind of quasi-state media outlets, but more of a pro-Trump angle. And to get mm. um, the Voice of America and Radio Free Europe to kind of support um, populist movements abroad and, and, and things like that. I think the agencies that I worry much more about being under his control are Customs and Border Protection and well, the Department of Homeland Security in general, the State Department and the Defense Department. Because many, many times in his first term, things that he wanted to happen didn't happen because there were professionals in these agencies who pushed back against them. I mean, one example you know, to take uh, immigration is that Trump was floating all kinds of ideas in meetings with Department of Homeland Security officials like, can't we just shoot refugees in the legs? Can't we put an alligator-filled moat at the border? And I mean, some of these are ridiculous, you know, so it, it, it's tempting not to take them seriously. But then you look, for instance, at the family separation policy, which the administration did push through and did stay um, operating for a couple of months to see the kind of damage that, that he can do. So I think the more that he gets the foreign policy agencies under his control, the less people there are to tell him what's a bad idea and what's a good idea. And that weakens that dynamic you talked about earlier, where the so-called adults in the room stop him from doing very negative things. Well, that, isn't a lot of it is going to be whatever Sean Hannity has been talking about as well, hasn't it? You know, I mean, it, it, he goes down that popular road and the, the talking heads on Fox News or wherever... I think have a lot of sway with him, don't they? Because he sees that they have got the, uh, you know, if they've got an audience, if they're rating, however ludicrous the idea, if they're rating, then that translates into, if he can then turn that into reality, what a winning combination that is. Right, exactly. I mean, this is something that we saw in the first Trump administration. You know, I would argue that Fox News became, in a way, the closest to a powerful state media outlet that any American president has ever had access to. But it wasn't just that Fox News was willing to endorse 
and kind of propagandize around everything that Trump did. It was also, like you said, that it became the way that the base talked to him. It became the way that the kind of right-wing media figures and populism could really influence Trump. And he often judged the success of what he was doing against what Fox News was saying. Now, at the start of this Republican primary, it looked briefly like the Murdoch media empire might endorse Ron DeSantis. And I think maybe that could the pound if Ron DeSantis didn't turn out to be such a kind of terrible campaigner and just do a really bad job of running his campaign. But now that Murdoch empire is firmly back in Trump's camp. It's firmly, again, just defending everything he does, trying to push him these bad ideas. And I mean, people are even talking about Tucker Carlson might be his, his vice president nominee, um, you know, which I, it's not too likely, I don't think, because, you know, I don't think Trump's going to take on somebody who's much more charismatic than him and, and you know has his own yeah. independent Tucker Carlson we should add for those who don't follow US media that closely very controversial uh, host of TV radio and, and highly controversial figure but entirely from within that media world he hasn't been a politician no exactly you know and he's he's he became one of the strongest media figures that was pushing trumpism and america first and that often deviated from what the actual real donald trump was doing. I mean, you see this also with Steve Bannon, who was also a very prominent figure in conservative media and actually came into the Trump White House in his first year. And then he left in quite a disaffected state because Bannon didn't like the fact that there were other power centers in that White House. You know, there were the Wall Street guys, there were the traditional national security guys. Bannon just wanted it to be all America first all the time. And Donald Trump, you know, whatever you might say about him, and believe me, I have a lot of things to say about him. He's not not the most ideologically consistent person. I think that he's not as ideologically consistent as Tucker Carlson, as Steve Bannon. So these people have an uneasy relationship with him, but they're constantly trying to push him towards what they see as true Trumpism. So, so with all this, with all this happening there, Andy, and this is being observed, and I guess now thought about in London, Berlin, Paris, and other places, what how can they deal with what you're talking about, what will might be coming down the line? What are the kind of ways in which they could take on Trump or deal with Trump? Is it a question of, of isolationism? They simply back off and try and say, well, America's left left the, the, the playing field and, and we have to do things on our own. I mean, what are the ways they should be thinking about Yeah, well, at what point does diplomacy, do you throw away diplomacy and go, yeah. that is just ridiculous, we want nothing to do with you? Right, so I think that the first thing that they should do and that they will do is that they will try to sell Trump as hard as possible on the status quo. They'll try to convince him that staying in NATO at the current level of commitment is in America's interest. So the coalition government in Germany will go to Trump and say, look how much we've increased defense spending. Look, we're doing what you want us to do. So you should stick with us and and not really rock the boat here. If and when that fails, then eventually you will reach a point where I don't think that countries will go for isolationism, but they will start seeking purely bilateral benefits benefits from Trump. They will say, basically, if we're entering this more kind of situation of anarchy where these multilateral institutions like NATO are breaking down or the global trading order is breaking down, we need to make sure that we come out of this scramble as top dog. So we need to try to get close to Trump, suck up to Trump, make sure that we get preferential treatment in trade matters, make sure that he recognizes our military contributions, you know, has been 
adequate or above adequate, you're going to see, you know, no country in the world, I think, can force can can afford to say, oh, well, you know, we just can't care what the United States thinks anymore. We don't care what the United States thinks anymore. Every country will seek a close relationship with that administration. And what is kind of worrying about this is that this leads then to, in a way, a kind of legitimization of Trump's yeah. approach. It gives you, a, you abandon your beliefs, don't you? So, I mean, a great example of that would be if he comes in and he's almost said this, that the, the situation in Ukraine, I mean, he said, oh, that can be solved in a day. He says, you know, I just want to stop the, the fighting. I stop, want to stop people being killed. And from that, you sort of think, well, that's him saying, well, okay, let's just call a ceasefire. Let's let Russia keep what it's got mm. uh, and let's stop funding Ukraine. And, uh, and the West is not going to accept that. Well, Europe can't, the EU can't accept that, can it? No, I mean, I, I think that the EU will not be happy about that. The UK will not be happy about that. But they have, at the end of the day, quite limited tools to do anything about this. I mean, it's not just the fact that America is materially much more important in providing support to Ukraine, but it's also that American leadership, which has been exercised by the Biden administration, herds cats together. It brings together all of these disparate allies with, with, with different agendas and gives them a plausible diplomatic and military route to achieve the goals that they want to achieve. And if you take that away, mm. then Ukraine gets in trouble really quickly. And of course- And it's an example many that Europe we're all doing what Donald says, basically. You know, it's like, uh, he, he and he will be motivated by that because he'll be showing his strength because everybody has just fallen into line with the approach that because he wants to take. Because they've got no take. choice. We, have, we they don't have, have the resources. Choice. Yeah, so he's right. He has got the power. Right, exactly. So, yeah, it's it's it, for him, it gives him those moments that he craves where he can fly to Europe or Kiev or Moscow and sign some agreement and then say, look, I did something big. I, Donald Trump, changed the reality of the world here. And for a lot of voters back in America, that will, you know, be a strong argument. You know, people who don't necessarily know the details of these conflicts, don't understand how it fits into the broader context that you asked about earlier with China and Iran and, and other countries. But for European countries, the countries that are here on the doorstep of Russia on the doorstep of Ukraine, these are incredibly consequential things. And, you know, if Trump does do this, if he does withdraw support from Ukraine, then you're going to be forced in people in Europe and the UK are going to be forced to really, really think hard about how do we reconstitute uh, some kind of security in the absence of an American commitment. I think the situation for Britain is particularly difficult and interesting because the obvious route to European security without America is obviously through some sort of cooperation, some, thought, some sort of cooperative mechanism. And the EU is the most obvious vehicle through which to do that. But the UK's politics towards Europe are very, very complicated well, right now. that could change a lot under, for example, a Keir Starmer government, I guess. Yeah, I mean, yeah. It, could be, it could actually bring on, you know, reunification of the UK into Europe, couldn't it, if we see this sort of dramatic change. Let me give you another one as well then, because, I mean, it, it's terrible, isn't it, to think that, you know, um, the, the global shift that would happen towards America and some of these battles that are being fought right now might be just given away because one man has decided uh, that that's the approach. What about another thing that we might not be prepared to abandon? Climate change. He's not a big believer in climate change. Do we just all fall into line and say, oh, well, you know, it was a nice planet while we had it. Um, let's just make the most of it while it's still here. <laughs> right. And, and I mean, that that's true. Donald Trump is not a big believer in climate change. And 
there's two main ways that that's going to play out. So one of them, which is really important, actually, is domestically. You know, the U.S. is the second largest emitter of of um, fossil fuels. So what it does at home is really important. The Biden administration had this really strong agenda of investing in domestic clean energy uh, industries and, and trying to build out the infrastructure for the green transition, which actually has led to many, many more manufacturing jobs appearing in the U.S. as well. So it's, to me, like a bit of an open question what's Trump going to do with that part of the agenda because it strengthens American manufacturing. That's supposedly something that he likes, but it does it in, in service of this kind of new economy that he dislikes. But if he were to take an ax to that, that would really, really undermine American leadership on this issue. And the other thing that we can expect him to do internationally is to, of course, withdraw once again from the Paris Climate Accords. And if he does that, he's really, really setting back global quality operation in pursuit of um, the green transition and, and trying to combat the effects of climate change. His policy towards China is also really important to watch well, here. I was going to bring because- that up because China, I mean, you know, he was famous for being very hard line on China, and yet at the same time, he's expressed some appreciation for Xi Jinping. But he's also said 60% tax on mm. all Chinese imports. Yeah. So I, I think that Trump's policy towards China in his first time is sometimes a bit misunderstood. So he was incredibly strong or let's say incredibly harsh on trade issues. So he started this trade war with China. You know, he talked a lot about the balance of payments. He really wanted to put a lot of tariffs and harm Chinese manufacturing. But he was actually at the same time very, very weak and and did not confront China on security issues or on human rights issues. Because he doesn't care. There's a book by Josh Rogan, who's a conservative uh, columnist we watch post about Trump's China policy. And he quotes a few things that Trump said to his staff about China in the first administration. And one of them was, I don't want to hear a word from you about Hong Kong or Taiwan or the Uyghurs. And he also said, Hong Kong, sorry, uh, Taiwan is like two meters away from China. It's 9,000 miles away from us. If they attack, there's not a bleeping thing that we can do about it. And he was really, really not strong on maintaining US security alliances in the Pacific. I mean, if you remember, he was constantly talking about, we're going to withdraw troops from South Korea. We want Japan to pay more for our troops to be there. So I think in his second term, you're probably going to see once again, this really massive focus on trade issues, which has a spillover into the security realm because China views this aggressive trade agenda as part of a a security effort by the US to suppress its rise and suppress the development of its own power. But I don't think Trump's that interested interested in defending Taiwan. I don't think he's that interested in the Uyghurs. So there's kind of this weird dichotomy to to his China policy, which I think, you know, people don't talk about that much. Well, let me pick up on that, because part of this whole thing, and you mentioned it, is is the economics that lies behind Trump and his suggestion or his feeling that he is guided by, for example, um, what's going on on Wall Street. I mean, the position of America at the moment, coming out of a period of uh, high inflation um, and, and relatively high interest rates, and moving, it seems, in the right direction. Is Trump actually going to in- inherit, if he gets into the White House again, an economy that's really going in the right direction? Is he going to, in fact, have a kind of Clinton boom type thing? In which case, a lot of this may be, I suppose, you know, he's riding on success with more money to do things. And where America goes well in economic terms, most of the world does too. If that does happen, that will be very similar to the story of his first administration as well. You know, he inherited an economic boom that began 
in the aftermath of the Great Recession, economic you know growth in the U.S. was high, unemployment was low for most of his administration until the COVID pandemic. And the same thing could happen again now. That I'm not an economist, but all the economists. I read say that the US seems to have avoided a hard landing um, from, from its inflation problem. It seems to be on a path to growth. Now, I do think that, again, with the caveat that I'm not an economist, that the US fiscal situation seems to be more constrained than it was previously. That post-Great Recession um, period of incredibly low interest rates seems to not be a situation that we're going to return to. So there are still choices to be made. Now, as we know, the way that Republicans administrations have made these choices since Reagan is that when faced with the choice between guns and butter, they they don't choose. They just choose both. You know, they usually pass large tax cuts and also high defense spending. And I think that's probably where you will see Trump's fiscal policy go in a second term. He'll try to trim some spending. But I think an underappreciated part of Trump's political brand and what led to his success is that he's not the sort of Republican who t- about get you know trimming or privatizing social security he's not the sort of republican who talks about trimming or privatizing medicare or medicaid he recognizes that his base voters really rely on these welfare programs and that makes him very different to many of the republicans that came before him this kind of paul ryan style conservatism which was all about you know fiscal austerity and getting the budget balanced again that's not trump you know in his personal life in his political life Trump's a I can have it all guy, right? He he doesn't um make hard choices like that. So actually, if you accept the continuation of those large social security programs, there's actually not that much fat to trim from the federal budget. You know, those programs make up so much of it. So and you bring I Congress think- along with him on this, because I mean we're it's a general election. There will be a new Congress. And the likelihood is if he's succeeds, I guess, Republicans will. But the kind of Republicans on the Hill will be the kind of people who would back that. You mean the kind of people who would back well, not... Back what, what, Trump, that, that, what you were saying about Trump's economics, i.e. not the Paul Ryan style. Right, yeah, absolutely, because the Republican Party is becoming much more Trumpified. You find hardly any Paul Ryan conservatives anymore. I mean, Ron DeSantis used to be a Paul Ryan conservative, and then when he wanted to seek the Republican presidential nomination, he went full Trump. So the Republican Party has really changed. And, you know, it's often not appreciated that Trump moved its economic policy somewhat to the left of what came before it because he's not targeting these these big entitlement programs. And the Congressional Republican Party will absolutely continue to go along with what he wants. So, you know, I think that you're going to see under Trump this continuation of a kind of big spending fiscal policy, but in an environment where it's a bit harder to do that because interest rates are higher. Well, I mean, arguably, America has had this soft landing if it, if it if it does eventuate because they have borrowed so much there's so much public spending which is not being seen in the rest of the world so you know a lot of economists say that's actually what's contributed for them getting you know this easy path uh, out of uh, this this hefty inflation but it can't go on forever and if he keeps on spending maybe that we'll reach a point but the, the the saving grace obviously has been they've got the reserve currency in America but i just wonder whether if he becomes uh, more, a less stable player, if America becomes a less stable country or less stable economy, 
whether that strength in the US dollar as the reserve currency might start to dissipate and we start start seeing people spending money that's previously been spending in US dollars, spending in some other currency like the euro or the yuan or whatever else, you know, or whoever else wants to come yeah, up with Yeah, lack of confidence currencies. in the US spreading yeah. in the economic sphere. Do you think that's, that's optional? Yeah, so, I mean, I think this specter has been around for quite a long time and it hasn't come to pass yet. There's no alternative, credible alternative to the US dollar as a global reserve currency right now. Although, you know, you see small scale efforts like China and Iran and Russia try to trade among themselves in other currencies. And, the BRICS currencies. Yeah. yeah, and, yeah. And, and make these small steps away from that. I think that this kind of, I mean, the thing is, it's often the case with the collapse of empires or the collapse of international monetary orders that they happen very quickly. You know, it's like that famous saying about going bankrupts that it happened very slowly and then all at once and i think that we don't know exactly when we're going to approach that tipping point but do you think that's the case do you think he could be the first step in the you know in in the end of the uh, of an empire you know is as is, is america going to lose its way through all of this i think that if we look at what he's talking about during in a second term the thing that is most likely to bring about that kind of rapid change are his international economic plans so right now now he's talking about a 10% tariff on all imports. And with China, you know, I think you said earlier 60%. He talks about different figures, you know, up to kind of 100%. If he were to mount this kind of sustained attack on the international economic order and actually go through with it, you know, so put those tariffs on everybody at the same time, which is something he tried to do in his first term. You know, he went after Europe and the UK and Japan and, and China all at once. Then that can have a... I think a really, really profound deglobalizing effect on the international economy. It can do a lot to convince other players in the international economy that American protectionism is really here to stay and they have to seek their future on the assumption that some other type of system is coming into play. And I think that that would be the be that could be the beginning of a process of of that kind of collapse of American economic hegemony and a movement more to a world of closed-off economic blocks that are more separate from one another and not well, trading we, with one another. Yeah, it feels like we're going that way anyway, doesn't yeah. it? That's 10% tariff on everything is going to do nothing, though, to American trade. It's just going to put prices up for American oh, well. <clears throat> citizens, yeah. I think, which would probably be you know enormously unpopular for him. So I wonder whether that's just another example of something he backtracks on. Just one other thing that we haven't talked about. I mean, we talked about human rights in terms of his view on human rights in China, for example, but what about human rights in America? America, uh, you know, there's only two genders. I sort of agree with him on that, but you know, there's well, a, lot, lot, there. a lot of people who don't. Uh, but you know, the idea that, uh, for example, teachers should be able to, you know, carry concealed weapons in schools and things—the stuff that just seems abhorrent to the rest of the world, which just could become the normal way of life within within America. And you're just thinking, if if you've got human rights abuse in America, how does the rest of the world deal with that? Yeah, I mean, so to me, there's two things going on here. So one of them is a continuation of what we've called the culture wars for the last couple of decades. So, no, it's the case that in America, there are just many people with values that are very different to the values that we typically have in Europe on issues like guns, for instance, are one of the ones that are most apparent to us. And I think that Europeans have confronted that in the past. I mean, if we think back to the George W. Bush administration, that was really a time when we were confronted with this president who was kind of caricatured as a cowboy who clearly embodied very 
conservative values that were not values that Europeans endorsed. And they seem to back torture, for example. Torture, right, right, right. And, mm. and, and so, you know, so Europe and America in the past have had to deal with this and they found a way to rub along. I think what's different about Trump is that he is the first president in post-war American history, arguably all of American history, who is so explicitly opposed to the basic values of the Constitution. He's so explicitly opposed to America's democratic process. And if he, you know, we look back on what happened in 2020 and the insurrection, if he continues in a second term to try to undermine American democracy in such a strong and powerful way, then that presents the Western allies with a really, really new situation that, you know, the leader of their supposed democratic bloc no longer believes in democracy. And and how can you credibly hold up the his values to the rest of the world while taking leadership from that person. And it also has domestic implications as well. There's all sorts of movements across Europe, in the UK. I mean, here in the Netherlands, Geert Wilders, the far-right populist leader, just won the largest vote share in um, the last election. He basically, you know, opposes the banning of Islam in Dutch society. It's an incredibly extreme uh, opinion. And Trump's success emboldened these movements. It emboldens the movements elsewhere in the West that challenge the democratic and the liberal basis of Western societies. So that's, that, that's the scary thing, isn't it? So the, so the question is, do, do we find that Western governments the world over just start to move in this in this same direction? That his his the power and influence that he has is so strong that uh, governments everywhere else We go, saw it with well, Bolsonaro you know, and Duterte in the Philippines, yeah, let's, let's Bolsonaro in Brazil. Over. A lot of people in our country think this way too. <clears throat> let's just roll over and accept it. Right, and I, I think that to an extent that has been happening ever since 2015-16 that you know these movements have become much stronger. They often very explicitly copy their language or their issues or you know the topics that they talk about from Trump. So it definitely is the case that if he is successful, that enormously emboldens illiberal forces in Western societies. And let's also not forget that there are also often the same forces who do not want to stand up for this you know, liberal international order that we all supposedly believe in and support. They're the people that don't really want to defend Ukraine. They're the people who don't really want to defend Taiwan. So there's a huge foreign policy implications for this. And it's almost like the the identity of the West is in the balance. And this election in November is going to go a long way to determine which way that balance shifts. So, Andy, as we draw this to a conclusion now, do you think, you know, the answer to the original question, do you think Western governments outside the U.S., are ready for what might be coming. Do you get the sense that they are making plans, that they are taking this all on board? Or or is there a kind of denialism going on, a kind of sense that, no, no, Joe Biden will be will be back, it'll be fine? Or, yeah. or are they taking it seriously? Yeah, well, how is the, how's that first meeting between Donald Trump and Keir Starmer going to go, for example? Mm. So I no longer believe that there's denialism. I think there was denialism. But when you look at the fact that Trump is cruising towards winning the Republican you look what's happening in his legal cases that I just don't think that denial is any longer an option and people are no longer doing that. But I think that the extent to which they can prepare is quite limited because Trump is so erratic. You don't know which way he's going to come out on, on lots of different issues. You can cling to the hope still, like we've talked about, that the adults in the room will stop him from doing these things or he'll back off from them because of the economic implications. So I think with Trump, you have to watch and watch 
and see what he says on the day. But everybody is going to be, everybody is, I can tell you, putting together their plans to woo Donald Trump, to make the case to him that he should continue to support the things that we care about and failing that, he should at least continue to support my country. Now, for Keir Starmer, it's kind of difficult because Keir Starmer comes from the section of British politics that Trump doesn't like. I mean, you know, the UK, I think, would be much better placed to treatment from a Trump administration if it had still a conservative prime minister, if it had like Boris Johnson or, or somebody like that, because we know that Trump makes these very kind of snap summary judgments about people, depending on whether he sees you as part of his political project or he sees you as opposed to that political project. So I think, you know, although I mean, I, I, you know, I can say this, I'm independent. I want Labour to, to win this, this UK general election, but also I think that that will put the quite a tricky position vis-a-vis America if Trump wins. Yeah. Well, look, if you want to communicate with Donald Trump, if you want to try and influence him, the answer is obviously get yourself in the morning on Fox News. And who knows, (laughs) it sets sets his decision for the, you know, his agenda for the day. may be preparing it even as we speak. Uh, Andy, thank you so much for being with us. Um, Frightening prospect. Might not happen, but at least it's good to know what might happen if it does. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me on. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, so he had some interesting things to he say. He did. He he's did. Got, he's got a newsletter, by the way, on Substack called America Explained. Yeah. So if so you he, want to hear more about that, and it sounds like yeah, he talks about it. Man clearly knows what he's talking about. And I mean, it is a grim prospect, isn't it? What might be coming down the line. I'll tell you about another grim prospect. Go on, is, then. I mean, and this is going to be a subject dear to your heart. You oh, know, thank the you. end of life. Oh, lovely. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I guess you a few that. years to go, yeah, Roger. Well, a little bit, yeah, you never but, know. I mean, but yeah, I mean, it has been a, a subject that's been, you know, addressed a lot lately, yes. and, but has been for, yes. for, for forever. What do you Euthanasia do when, is what we're talking about. When someone is seriously ill, mm. shouldn't they just be able to decide for themselves that they want to end their is life? Is it a basic human right that you should be able to decide when to end your life and uh, be allowed to have people help you do it, which is the key, because, I mean, anyone, I suppose, can, can top themselves, potentially, but... Uh, to do it in a way which is not unpleasant, which is somehow, you know, humane. Should should it be a fundamental human right that we're able to do that? But the counter-argument always being that if you, there is a legal right to do it, and in many countries now that is true, the Netherlands, parts of the United States, uh, Belgium, uh, you can opt for this. Is Why there a risk we... that people will be forced to, pushed into it, not forced into it, but kind of, you know, oh, so-and-so's a bit old and, you know, a bit of a waste of time, uh, not much quality well, of life, right. goodbye. So you know. you're saying re- relatives make that decision or well, doctors make that decision? Yeah, well, yeah. Uh, relatives, I think, mm. is, is, is the suggestion that people mm. could be pressured into it, made to feel useless, and that somehow mm. if you were able to make sure that people didn't live lives of suffering, mm. uh, that they can keep living. So, you know, helping the living rather than helping them to die. Mm. Hadn't thought of it that way. I mean, to me, it was just a black and white thing. If you want to die, yeah. you're going to have it. You know, you're going to struggle. You surely should be able to make that decision for yourself. But well, if you a lot get of people controlled are into it by others, that's then, what people are worried about. Mm. Uh, and, and you know, much as one might say it wouldn't happen, the chances are it would. But mm. let's talk about the rights of that grim subject. But something that needs to be addressed and very much is being talked about at the moment with the prospect of new legislation. Yeah. Well, I look forward to that one. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> Well, <laughs> try it's and, important. It's yeah, important. It is important stuff. And that's we don't what, avoid that's, important stuff. That here. is what we're here for on The Y Curve. Thanks for listening this week. We'll catch you next week. Bye. The Y Curve.